Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Polita Clark, standing in for Gideon Rackman, and this week we're looking at an effort to create a new international crime of ecocide for those who commit mass destruction of the environment. My guest is Philippe Sands, human rights barrister, professor, author, and an expert in international law who recently co-chaired a panel that produced a legal definition of this proposed new crime. So what is ecocide? How would it be applied and why do we need it? The idea of making environmental protection part of the international legal order is relatively recent. One of the earliest references to ecocide came in 1972, when Sweden's then Prime Minister, Olaf Palmer, invoked the concept at a global environment conference in Stockholm, where he spoke about environmental damage in the Vietnam War. The immense destruction brought about by indiscriminate bombing by large-scale use of bulldozers and herbicides is an outrage, sometimes described as ecocide, which requires urgent international attention. Since then, there have been repeated cases of egregious environmental damage, from the Chernobyl nuclear power plant explosion to the Deepwater Horizon disaster in 2010, which is thought to be the largest marine oil spill in history. On Louisiana's coast, more dirty oil washed ashore today. The greatest oil spill in American history now covers 29,000 square miles, the size of South Carolina. In Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro's government has faced an international outcry for failing to curb the destruction of the Amazon. Firefighters, no match for flames this ferocious and this intense. That curtain of fire igniting palm trees here on the Bolivian-Brazilian border, fueled by wind, the flames leaping across the dry brush. Many countries do, of course, have national laws to criminalise environmental damage. When I spoke to Philippe Sands, I started by asking him, why do we need a new international law on ecocide as well? Well, I'd say we need a new law because there's a gap. 75 years ago, exactly, countries came together and in essence created the modern system of international criminal law. And that included an old crime, war crimes, and then they added three new ones, the crime of aggression, waging illegal war, crimes against humanity, mistreatment of individuals, and the crime of genocide, mistreatment of groups. They're all very human-focused. They've worked up to a point. They've been significant. Of course, they haven't stopped all the horrors. But there's a gap, and one of those gaps that needs to be filled is in relation to the natural world that is not addressed right now. And the protection of the environment does not fit neatly into any of the existing crimes or categories. Right. So explain to me how the definition that your group has devised would 
actually work in practice? Because since it was issued in June, it's begun to enter public debate in some very interesting ways. In the UK House of Lords, for example, a member has asked if the bosses of the Southern Water Utility should be charged with ecocide after they were fined a record £90 million for illegally dumping sewage thousands of times. And in Mexico, environmental groups have said the state oil group, Pemex, should face the same charge for an accidental gas leak that set the sea on fire. Could your definition potentially cover incidents like these? Really important question, Polita. So we were a group of 12 lawyers, very broad backgrounds. I co-chaired it with a very distinguished Senegalese jurist, and I was very pleased that the 12 of us with our vastly different backgrounds managed to find a consensus. Not so easy. But what we've basically had in mind is that whatever attacks there are on the environment has to cross one serious bright red line, and that is it's got to be of international interest. So it wasn't our task, we thought, to criminalise all sorts of environmental issues that are best dealt with at the national level or at the local level. We wanted to find a way of saying there are certain acts which are so terrible that they are of international interest, like genocide. You know, I recently argued the case the Gambia against Myanmar in relation to allegations of the crime of genocide in relation to the Rohingya community. So the international community with the 1948 Genocide Convention has said certain acts of mass murder are so terrible that any country in the world has the right to bring proceedings in relation to it. And that's really, in a sense, what we had in mind. So the definition that we came up with has a number of thresholds. There has to be a substantial likelihood of severe damage. The damage has to be widespread or long-term, and it has to be committed either unlawfully or with wanton disregard for its consequences. But we purposely did not want to come up with a list, because once you have one list, the things you leave out, everyone says, oh, well, that's all fine. So it was a conscious decision not to come up with a list. But obviously, the kinds of things we had in mind were acts against the environment, which cost a threshold, for example, in relation to air pollution or climate change, in relation to biodiversity or forest loss or loss of Great Barrier Reefs or that kind of situation, transboundary movements and dumping of hazardous wastes, But it has to be on a level that the whole of the international community says, hang on a second, that's not on. There is an international interest in stopping that. Okay, so that's really interesting. So if I'm understanding it correctly, then it suggests that, say, the ongoing destruction of the Amazon forest could meet that definition. But perhaps something like the enormous Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010 despite being absolutely huge, might not actually technically meet that definition. You're hitting the nail right on the head. Coming back to your examples, I mean, a massive pollution of water in England or Wales, for example, ordinarily that's capable of being addressed at the national level. It's not an act of international interest because of its nature, its scale, or its gravity. And so you've got a continuum and a scale you get to something like deep water. And because that affects international waters, because it's physically on a scale that's so significant, perhaps some people, I mean, some people in our group would undoubtedly say 
that is ecocide and it is engendered. The Amazon and the rainforest, I think many more people would say, you know, destruction on that kind of a scale, wanton disregard of the consequences, the international interest. I think more and more people would say, you know what, that definitely crosses the line. But it's a bit like the famous test on pornography uttered by Lord Devlin. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. There are some things that are really difficult to define precisely. And so ultimately, as with the crime of genocide and crimes against humanity, it's going to be a matter of first impression for a prosecutor who will have to form a view as to whether she or he can persuade a panel of three judges at the International Criminal Court that there's a plausible chance that this would lead to a conviction. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are very interested to know whether this law could conceivably be used when it comes to climate change, obviously large, massive, global, existential problem. This phrase, wanton disregard, that is included in your definition, that suggests that an oil company, for example, that is trying to consciously limit its emissions because it understands the threat to the planet that they constitute, may escape prosecution, whereas one that says it's doing that but in fact continues to lobby against curbs on fossil fuels might not escape. Or is that a misreading of the definition? It was interesting. The other day I was listening to a podcast from the United States and it was interrupted by an advertisement um, by Chevron singing its green credentials. And, of course, one of the members of our group had been very actively involved in the litigation in Ecuador that involved Chevron. And he, of course, would like to set the bar very much lower. Pretty much any oil spill that an oil company does would, in his view, amount to the crime of ecocide. Others shared that view. Others took a different view and would set the bar much higher. Climate change, we talked about a lot. It's problematic, not just because of the scale, but because each and every one of us are contributing to the problem. I contribute to the problem in my daily life as a human being, switching on electricity, driving a car, going to the petrol station to fill up or whatever. But I also contribute to it, and I need to be clear about this, in my professional activity. So I do a lot of cases around the world on the delimitation of maritime boundaries between countries. And what those delimitations are often about is creating legal certainty so that national or international oil and gas companies can exploit the oil and gas that are there. And I'm starting to ask myself the question, am I providing advice on the resolution of disputes on maritime boundaries in wanton disregard of the impacts for the climate system by essentially enabling exploration of oil and gas to take place? Yeah, it's such an interesting point. I mean, you know, is the, is the Financial Times doing that by allowing advertisements from fossil fuel companies to be published. Exactly. Each and every one of us is involved. But the question becomes, at what point does an act cross a line on ecocide? When I'm engaged in delimiting a maritime area which will open up vast tracts of new oil fields to be exploited, does that make me an ecocider? Or do I have to be the chief executive officer of a company who essentially invests in that act of opening up at this time vast new oil fields. And I think one of the real complexities with this issue is if I take my own situation, I mean, I'm often advising countries in Africa or South America, often very impoverished countries who see access to these resources as a way 
understandably, of bettering the lives of their citizens. It's probably a pretty noble endeavor. But of course, it has significant environmental consequences. And that raises an important question. Does the crime of ecocide apply equally across the board? Does the same act that takes place in one, let's say, OECD country amount to the crime of ecocide? But if it's done in an impoverished African country, which needs the resources, not amount to ecocide. And this is, I think, another really complex issue as we go forward. Is it a one-size-fits-all, or do you apply the rules in different ways to different individuals or countries, depending on the particular circumstances? I don't have an answer to the question. It's very difficult. So interesting, so so complicated. Let me just test you on one final idea, because of course a lot of people are extremely worried about plastic pollution and the industrial fishing that causes enormous havoc for bird life, fish, and marine ecosystems. Would it be possible to see the main players in plastic production and industrial fishing eventually prosecuted? I think that any act that is capable of causing serious impacts on the environment, which are widespread in geographic terms, which this is, or irreversible, which this may also be, I think needs to consider themselves to be at risk of being an ecocidaire. My main reason for doing this was not because, as with the crime of genocide, I expect hundreds or thousands of people to be indicted and prosecuted and locked up or whatever. We know that's not how the world works but because it changes consciousness. It's a way of saying, you know what, you can no longer act in this way. It is not permissible in modern society to engage in certain activity. And that hopefully will concentrate the mind. And my experience for that was some years back, I was involved in giving advice in the corporate sector, in the field of tobacco. And it was really fascinating. Could the production and selling of certain products in certain ways in that domain amount to a crime against humanity? And my answer was yes, it could. And it's very interesting that once you suggest to an individual who's a legal advisor or chief executive or chief operating officer that their individual act could expose them to risk of criminal liability, that concentrates the mind. For this to work, and the reason we've gone the the International Criminal Court route, is that once it's adopted at the international level, every state party to the International Criminal Court has to implement domestic law, which criminalizes the act in its own national legal system. And so you've got a sort of trickle-down, top-down type of approach. And I think that's what ultimately changes behavior. Yeah. And did that advice make any tobacco company think differently, do you think? I think it did, actually. I think that we have seen in that field a significant change. I mean, the issue there, if you want to draw a parallel, is at what point did those in the industry become aware that the product they were making and supplying was going to cause serious harm to human beings? And was that information suppressed? And the parallel question, of course, in relation to, let's say, climate change, is at what point did certain people in the corporate sector become aware that the consequences for the climate system were likely to be or would be so significant as to be significantly harmful? Has there been a cover-up of the material? And I think that with everything in this domain, it all begins 
with the act of reflection. And once people start asking themselves, wow, could I be criminally responsible? They start to think differently. And I think this is a generational issue. You know, why did I sit on the ecocide panel? I wanted to do it, but it's very interesting. I have three children, all in their 20s. I think I do often quite interesting cases and work and projects. This is the first time that all three of my kids got in touch and said, hey, dad, this is fantastic. You're doing this. And you know what? I think chief executives and legal advisors and others often have kids. And that generation is going to say, you've got to start thinking seriously about what you're doing. Right. Well, I actually want to move on now to the likelihood of it being adopted. And you've mentioned this term echo sedere a couple of times. And President Macron in France has obviously been one of the big supporters of an ecocide law being enshrined in his country. But what's the latest on that? Has that actually happened in France? It has not happened in France. I think this is an example of President Macron wanting to do the right thing and probably uttering a few words without fully realising what he was unleashing, probably because there was a domestic problem in the sense that he needed to burnish his green credentials. France has, has set up commissions and they are trying to come up with a definition and they're finding it very difficult. And the reason they're finding it very difficult is because of exactly the kinds of practical consequences that you have raised. And many reasonable folk are saying, well, hang on a second, why are we subjecting our people, our industries, ourselves, to this kind of constraints when others are not. Let's do this at the European level or let's do it at the international level so that there's more of a level playing field. And that has tended to slow down the exercise in France. Ah, so interesting because, you know, France has been really quite advanced. It's been quite a champion of these sorts of ideas and other environmental measures in general. I wonder, though, if you can tell us what you've seen since the issuance of your definition. Have you heard or seen many other leaders or prominent parliamentarians or other figures who have said that they'd like to see this adopted? Absolutely fascinating reaction. I mean, I'm quite often involved in things that enter public consciousness, they're in the public domain, and you can get a sense from social media to what extent they do or don't resonate. And this had a big, big resonance. It really seems to have chimed with public consciousness and not just public consciousness. I was happily surprised three or four days after a piece actually that appeared in the Financial Times. The Secretary General of the United Nations said, we need a new crime of ecocide integrated into the statute of the International Criminal Court. And then just last week, the vice president of the European Commission, Mr. Timmermans, pretty much said the same thing. He said, well, we're not quite ready now, but in two or three years, we're definitely going to need this to happen. I've had privately a number of governments get in touch and say, we are on board. And one government in particular has asked whether when negotiations begin, would I be willing to assist them? I said, of course, a serious government this is. And so I think what's happening, we're in the stage now where the ideas are percolating around, you know, in the corporate sector, in the NGO sector, in the governmental sector. So the next thing that has to happen is a group of countries have to decide whether they want to formally run with it in the context of an amendment to the Statute of the International Criminal Court. So basically, if you could get six or seven countries to decide to do that, they will then put it on the agenda of what's called the Assembly of State Parties. There's about 123 parties to the International Criminal Court Statute. 
And once it's gone onto the agenda for discussion, then they may decide to start a formal negotiation. And if they've started a formal negotiation, if that reaches fruition and they come up with a text of their own, then 80 countries have to support it for it to be adopted. So it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it need not happen in 10 years. It could happen sooner than that. It's all about political will. It's all about six or seven political leaders saying, we support this. And the signs are really interesting. A few days after we adopted our definition, I got an invitation to do a webinar for the German embassy in The Hague. The Hague, of course, is where the International Criminal Court is based. And they just wanted to do a webinar on ecocide, just a frank exchange of views, no agenda, no nothing. What is this? What might happen? Exactly as we're talking about now. But the reality is the German embassy is a serious embassy. You don't have that kind of webinar unless there have been conversations in advance with Berlin. Should we be doing this? Do we want to be seen to be doing this? The audience is going to be a very significant audience because it's in The Hague. And that, I think, is a signal that there's some pretty serious countries out there who are thinking seriously about it. So it's not completely outside the bounds of possibility that this could be adopted in five or six years' time? Not at all. I wanted to come up with a definition that was not dead on arrival. And it had to be plausible. That meant making concessions. No one on that working group got everything that they wanted. The idea is to get this up and running as an idea in which people say, yes, this is plausible. And it's been interesting reading the articles and the blogs, including by many distinguished lawyers who've said, oh, this is good, or this is not good, or this is how I'd change it. That's exactly what we wanted, was a debate. And that debate is now underway. And my sense is that within the next year, I think it is more likely than not that a group of countries will say, we want to run with this and start the process. How long it takes after that is anyone's guess. But I would say five or six years is a reasonable guess as to the earliest something could be adopted. And in international law terms, that's pretty quick. Yeah. and. Just finally, if it is ever adopted, what kind of case would you like to see prosecuted first? I'm a very strong believer in going for what in the corporate sector is called low-hanging fruit. In other words, don't start with the biggest case on the planet. Find something that is discreet, that is narrow, that you're likely to get a successful prosecution and conviction so that you can then, as an institution, the International Criminal Court, build up your track record. And I would have thought probably you don't want to go with a major headline type of figure like massive biodiversity loss or climate change. My instinct is probably to go for something like some really outrageous dumping of toxic, hazardous, horrible waste transported from a northern country to a developing country where the facts are easily proved and really horrific. I mean, the case that often comes to mind, it's in the past, I can talk about it, is the Trafigura case. If you remember when waste came from Europe and was dumped in the Ivory Coast, right where people were living, causing absolute terrible harm to the environment and to human beings. I think that's the kind of discreet, focused case a sensible prosecutor ought to start with, not biodiversity generally, climate change, these kinds of things, which are going to be much more difficult 
to establish. You want your first cases to be winning cases as a prosecutor. That was Philippe Sands ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks for listening. Gideon will be back next week with another discussion of international affairs, so please join him then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.